the system, lawyers will use a variety of strategies to try to get their defendants a not guilty verdict. In fact, some of the shows I've watched, some of the lawyers don't even care if they know whether their defendant is guilty or not guilty. They still just want to use the tactics that they have. Now, the strategies vary based on the case and the style that the defense attorney uses, but here's some of their favorite strategies. Some lawyers will appeal to self-defense. If it's a violent crime, they'll say they were just defending themselves. Someone was attacking them, and that's why this got carried out of hand, and that's why all these things happened in such a violent court case. This person was just acting in self-defense. Some lawyers use the strategy of entrapment. They'll argue that law enforcement was trying to induce an individual to commit crime. And we've seen a lot of people argue for that more and more nowadays. They'll say that it wasn't the defendant's fault, but the police was just agging them on or encouraging them to commit this crime. Along with that, some defense attorneys will argue for police misconduct, that the police interfered or that they exaggerated the statements, tried to get a guilty plea from someone who wasn't actually guilty. Maybe they'll say they improperly handled the evidence, pressured an innocent person to admit guilt, or that they didn't read their rights. All of this is to try to get something called reasonable doubt among the jurors, trying to get at least one juror to have reasonable doubt that this person actually committed the crime. So they do this through a variety of different Strategies And over the next few weeks in our sermon series on Acts, we'll be looking at Paul defending his faith. And he's going to do so in a variety of different areas. Today we're going to see him do it in front of an angry mob. And really what he's fighting for is the court of public opinion, trying to help the Jewish people see that he's not against the Jewish ethnic group, that he's not so different than they are, but that he's just had a relationship with, with Jesus Christ. And so that's what we'll see this morning. And in the following weeks, we'll see Paul defending the faith in front of different officials and different people groups and even in front of kings. And as he does this, he uses a defense strategy that Luke talks about here in verse 1. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 22, Paul says, Brothers, hear the defense that I now make before you. That Greek word is apologia. It sounds like apology to us. It's where we get the word for apologetics. And that doesn't mean we're apologizing for our faith, but it means that we're making a defense, that we are arguing for our faith, that we're giving other people a reason for the hope that we have within us, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. We've seen Paul do apologetics or defend the faith throughout the book of Acts. We see him do it in the city of Athens. He was defending the faith there, specifically in front of people who were pagans, polytheists. And he was arguing for the fact that there's one God. And what we'll see him do in these next several chapters in Acts is defend the faith, defend the gospel in front of these Jewish officials and eventually Roman officials as well. Now, as we've looked at with Paul throughout the last part of this book of Acts, we've seen him face many different challenges. We've seen him stoned almost to death. In fact, they thought he was dead. And what did he do? He got up, he shook the dust off of his clothes, and he just kept on going. We've seen him thrown in prison. We've seen him beaten. We've seen him righted against, mocked, and flat out denied as he tries to share the gospel with people. 
And this won't stop here, but it'll continue throughout the rest of the book of Acts. For as much success as Paul had, and we can all, I think, agree, Paul was a very successful missionary. Paul was part of spreading the gospel to not only Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the world, as Christ says in Acts chapter 1. He gets the gospel out to Macedonia and Achaia and Asia Minor, all these places. And it could be argued that if it wasn't for Paul, you and I may not have even heard of the gospel because of his influence on the Gentiles. So Paul had a lot of success as a missionary, but he also faced a lot of rejection. He also had a lot of people who heard the gospel message and turned away and rejected it. And so maybe that's an encouragement to us. I think it's an encouragement to me that when people hear me when I share my testimony or when I share the gospel and they reject me, that it's not something new, but that it's something that has been going on even since Christ who was rejected. So we all face rejection throughout the Christian life. We all have people who say no when we share the gospel with them. But rejection can be hard. And rejection can make us discouraged. And it can make us not want to continue in evangelistic ministry. And I want us to just, before we get into this text, consider four different aspects of defending our faith, especially as it pertains to rejection. This is going to frame some of our discussion as we get into the later chapters of Acts. What does it mean to defend our faith and how can we do that even when we're rejected? I want us to see four things just real quick before we get into this text. First of all, scripture calls us to defend our faith, number one, but with gentleness and respect. And don't miss both parts of that. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we're told to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And sometimes we just want to focus on that part and say we always have an answer, we're always defending the faith, and that is a good thing. But many of us miss the last part of that verse where it says, with gentleness and respect. It doesn't mean people won't reject us. It doesn't mean that people may not like what we're saying, but we do so in a respectful way. We do so in a way that is trying to appeal to them. Secondly, we should remember that we can share truth, but it's God that changes hearts. We can share the truth with people. We can be faithful to doing that. And you can say, well, I've shared the truth with this person. Why haven't they changed? Because we can't change hearts. It's God that changes hearts. It's God that is ultimately working in someone's life. And we'll see that with Paul. We're going to see a man later who Paul shares the gospel with, and he says, you've almost convinced me to be a Christian. And man, that's such a sad story of a man who's almost converted. And it's just the truth that we can share the gospel with someone, but it's only God who changes their hearts. Number three, we can explain our faith, but we should never be ashamed of our faith. We have reasons. We can give answers. There are some confusing things within the Bible. I think we can admit that. There are some things that you might read the first time and say, well, I don't think that makes sense. There are some things we should explain, but we should never be ashamed of our faith. We're doing apologetics, defending our faith, but we're not apologizing for what we believe. And then lastly, and we should really remember this as we look at these passages 
and as we share our faith with others. Our confidence is not in our evidence, our philosophy, or our rhetoric, but it's in God and his word. And you'll meet a lot of people who are apologists, and maybe they're very smart and very well-spoken, and you watch a video and you say, that's such great evidence. Schaefer showed us a mathematic video a couple weeks ago in Sunday school that really argued for the existence of God from math. It was such a cool display, and it's great evidence. We can have good evidence. We can have good philosophy. The way we believe about the world, our arguments can make sense from a logical perspective. And rhetoric, that means to be well-spoken. We can be good communicators, but our confidence is not in those things. If it is, we're only going to be frustrated. You'll think, well, I said this in the right way, or I gave this evidence. Why don't they believe? Our confidence is in God and his word. Like I said, it's God who changes hearts. It's God's word that people need to hear And so this morning, what I want us to see is that we should faithfully share the gospel despite rejection. That we should faithfully share the gospel despite rejection. So how can we share the gospel? How can we communicate God's truth to others? Let's look at how Paul did this this morning. And we'll look at three different ways that he shared the gospel, that he faithfully shared his testimony, and then how we can do that as well. Look with me at verses 37 through the beginning of chapter 22. And we'll see, first of all, that we should honestly remember our sinful past. You should honestly remember your sinful past. Look with me at verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greeks? We see this start of a conversation between Paul. Remember last week, he at the end of our sermon... We saw him mobbed against by the Jewish people because he was bringing Gentiles into the temple. He's almost killed because he's beaten. And the Romans take Paul. And there's so much confusion. People are talking over one another that the tribune brings him to this barracks or this fortress of Antonia. As they get there, Paul wants to try to communicate something to him. But to the surprise of the tribune, who is an official over a thousand Roman soldiers, a very high-ranking official, the tribune didn't even realize that he knew Greek. That's how crazy this situation was. People are talking over one another. Paul's probably not even really able to talk about what's going on. He assumed, I think this officer assumed, that Paul only knew Hebrew or Aramaic. And we'll get into that in a moment. But he realizes Paul knows Greek. He's somewhat well-educated and well-spoken. And so as Paul says he does know Greek, he says, Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? And he's saying, now, what is he talking about? Why is he bringing this up? During that time, and not only does the Bible say this, but a historian named Josephus says this as well, there was an Egyptian man who was trying to attract people to his cause. And many people called him the new Moses during that time. There's a lot of people trying to be the Messiah, trying to act like the Messiah. And they would try to act like Moses, because if you know Jewish history, Moses was a very popular figure during that time. He led the Israelites out of Egypt. And so he was trying to lead the Israelite people out of Rome. And so he stirs up this revolt 
And it says he led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness. Now, who are these assassins? Well, they're called dagger men. They're people who would try to assassinate Roman officials. They would hide in the streets with large cloaks. They would have a dagger with them. And they'd try to assassinate these Roman officials. And apparently this was a large group of people. There's about 4,000 people that were part of this group. And this Egyptian led them into the wilderness. You think about Moses. He led the Israelites from Egypt into the wilderness. Now, they were in the wilderness much longer than they wanted to be. But that's because of their own disobedience. He's trying to be a new Moses. And the tribune says, maybe this Paul is this Egyptian. Now, you say, why would he think he's Egyptian? Did he look like an Egyptian? Did he sound like an Egyptian? We don't know exactly what Paul looked like. But Greek was well-spoken throughout Egypt. Many of the Egyptians knew the Greek language. So the fact that Paul looked like he was Jewish but knew Greek leads this man to believe maybe he is Egyptian. Maybe this is the guy we've been looking for. In verse 39, Paul replies, he says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. Many scholars think that as Paul hears this man say that he's an Egyptian, he actually takes offense to it. It's almost like a racial slur because it wasn't well thought of to be from Egypt. So Paul's saying, I'm not from Egypt, but he's from a very well-known city of Tarsus. It was a good thing to be from that city. It gave you some social standing. And as we'll see later on in the sermon, Paul had quite a bit of social standing that he could stand up for himself with. So he says, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you to permit to me to speak to the people. Now, why does this tribune let Paul speak? If you were a guard, if you were transporting a prisoner, would you just let him start talking to people in the crowd? Many think that as Paul takes offense to this comment from the tribune, the tribune may start to realize, hey, this guy has some importance. He has some significance. And so possibly to appease Paul, he lets him stand up and give this speech in front of the Jews. The tribune is also, I think, looking for a way to calm down these people. Why were the Romans involved in the first place? Because there was a large riot. And they didn't want to riot in the streets. They wanted everything to be peaceful because the capital city, Rome, would get involved if there was a riot going on in that area. So in verse 40... And when he had given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. So Paul gets up on the steps. He's at this fortress, and we can almost see this mob that he's looking down on surrounding him. And he motions with his hand. This was a common Jewish thing to do to try to get people's attention. And he starts addressing them in Hebrew. Now, Many think that he was actually speaking in Aramaic, so maybe this wasn't Hebrew, but this was the language that the Hebrew people spoke because many Hebrew people spoke Aramaic during that time. Either way, the point is, he's not speaking Greek. That's going to become important as we get to the last part of our sermon today. The Roman soldiers could not understand what Paul was saying. He was speaking Aramaic, he was speaking Hebrew, but he wasn't speaking Greek. So as we're going to look later in this passage... The tribune's not going to understand any part of what Paul's saying, and he's going to wonder why the people are getting so upset. So he starts talking to them, and he says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. 
So we said that that word defense is apologia. We get our Greek word or our English word apologetics from that to defend the faith. He says brothers and fathers, he's trying to build some rapport with them. And this is going to be a theme that we see throughout this defense that Paul makes. He's trying to show them that he was Jewish. Not Jewish, that he didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, but Jewish ethnically, that he was part of them. And he's trying to show them how Paul as a Jew could accept Jesus to be the Christ. Verse 2, And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So as they hear that he's speaking in either Hebrew or Aramaic, they start paying attention to him because they want to see what he has to say. So now Paul's going to share the first part of his testimony. He's going, and he does this a couple times in the last couple chapters of Acts. He's going to show them his past. In verse 3, he says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So he says, I'm a Jewish person. That's why he knows this language. He tells them where he's from, Tarsus, which was an important city. But while he was born in Tarsus, it says he was educated under the feet of Gamaliel. Who was Gamaliel? We saw him in Acts chapter 5. He was an important Jewish teacher. When the apostles in Acts 5 are being beaten, and when they want to kill the apostles, it's Gamaliel who stands up and says, we should let them go. Because if this is a movement, if this Christian movement just comes from men, then it'll just die out. It'll just go away. But if it's from God, then there's none of us who can stop it. And you'll notice there that when Gamaliel speaks, everyone listens. When Gamaliel says something, everyone pays attention to it. That's what kind of Jewish teacher he was. So Paul learned from this man. He was an important Jewish man. And it says, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Paul knew the law. He knew the law very, very well. He says his father, so his father and grandfather and his history knew the law, going all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew this law, the strict manner of it. So there were different opinions on how strict you had to obey the law. But Paul was a legalist. He really obeyed the law to the strictest sense. And he was a legalist in the sense that he thought he earned righteousness with God from it. He says he was zealous for God as all of you are this day. To be zealous means to be committed to a cause, to be passionate about. He says, I really cared for the law. I cared for following the God of the Old Testament. And he notes that many of them who are there were zealous for following God as well. Paul's saying, I know where you're coming from. This was my past as well. Verse 4 says, I persecuted the way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Paul highlights how involved he was in this Jewish movement by saying, I persecuted Christians. The way we've seen is another name for the, Jew or for the Christian movement in the book of Acts. Paul says, I was a persecutor. I delivered men and women to prison. We'll see later he mentions how he oversaw the stoning of Stephen, the deacon, when Stephen in Acts 7 was preaching the gospel and he's 
arrested and he's stoned to death, it says that Paul watched over their garments or he stood there and approved of what was going on. He was a member of the Sanhedrin that oversaw that event. In Acts chapter 8 and 9, he breathed out threats against the church. He was a persecutor. He, it says he was binding and delivering to prison both men and women. This is what we see him do in Damascus. He talks about this in verse 5. He says, As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed downward towards Damascus to take also those who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be replenished. So Paul, as he gives this defense, what's interesting is he's going to cite several people who can affirm Paul and his past. He mentions Gamaliel, who was an important Jewish teacher. Gamaliel could say, yes, I taught Paul. Paul was with me. He learned the law from me. And he says, if you don't believe Gamaliel, ask the scribes and ask the elders and the Pharisees. They gave Paul this authority, the high priest during that time, and the elders gave Paul the authority to go to Damascus and persecute Christians. This is why Paul was in Damascus in the first place. And we know this from Acts 9. He had these letters that would go to the synagogue there that would give him the authority and the jurisdiction to persecute Christians in that town. The synagogue in Damascus would technically have the rights to oversee what kind of persecution was going on towards the Christians. But when the high priest sent a letter to them, They were saying, you need to let Paul operate here. So this shows the type of involvement that Paul had as a Jewish zealot and that he was against the law. Now, we see Paul give his testimony here, but I want us to also go to Philippians chapter 3. If you look at Philippians chapter 3, you see even more description given to Paul in his past. Look at verse 2 of Philippians chapter 3. Look out for dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Je- in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. So he starts talking about these false teachers. He says, be careful. They're going to try to tell you that righteousness and confidence comes from good works, comes from trying to earn the law And doing things yourself. And in verse 4 he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he have reason for confidence in the flesh, I more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law. He was circumcised. He was part of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew. He understood the Jewish people. He knew... The law. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. He was a perfect keeper of the law in their terms. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Again, that word zeal means to be enthusiastic towards something. You might say, well, how enthusiastic are you? Paul was so enthusiastic that he was killing people that weren't part of his cause. I would say that's pretty enthusiastic. I don't know about you. Paul was a major zealous fan of the Jewish people. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So we know that Paul really couldn't be blameless, and that's the point he's trying to make. 
But as far as the Jews were concerned, Paul was blameless. You couldn't hold anything up against him. But look at verse 7. But whatever I had to gain, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul honestly acknowledges his sinful past, and it's something we should pay attention to. All of us have a testimony. There's not any one of us who were perfect before we were saved. There's none of us who had righteousness with God before we were saved. We can all identify our sinful past. Now, maybe you were young when you were saved. I myself was six years old when I became a Christian. So I didn't have a past of robbing banks and of all these different crimes that I was arrested for. I was very young. And some people weren't saved until they were older. Maybe they do have a testimony where they turn away from a lot of noticeable sin. Yet all of us can identify the fact that we were lost without Christ. That the things that we lived for, the things that we were motivated by, were sinful. And as you share your testimony with others, you can say, if I'd gone down that road, if I'd continued on that path, if Christ had not intervened in my life, I would have gone to my own destruction. Think about different people who don't know the gospel, who continue to go down that lifestyle and how lost their life is. We don't look at them to try to judge them. We don't look at them to try to have pride, but we look at how sad it is to not know Christ. Paul says, I was caught up in this Judaism thing. I was very concerned about it. But in Philippians, he says, all that got me was things that I don't care about anymore. They're things that I consider to be loss or rubbish, as he calls it. What truly matters, it's knowing Christ. Now, be careful with this as you honestly remember your sinful past. Some people, as they give their testimony, they try to drum it up a little bit. And they really get into the different acts of sin. And sometimes that can be helpful. Sometimes that's not helpful. And sometimes you're almost glorying in how sinful you were. The point is not necessarily the extent of your sinfulness, but it is the grace of God that he's given you to overcome your sin. And so as we think about that, we want to honestly remember our past, but we don't want that to be the whole point. When you share your testimony with someone, you don't just want to go on and on and on about how sinful you were. But number two, what we want to do is we want to focus on the person and work of Christ. We want our message of the gospel to lead people to a person, and that's Christ. So number two, we present unbelievers with the person and work of Christ. And Paul's going to get to this point, to this idea in verses 6 through 16. So look with me at verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. So Paul is going to persecute Christians. He is going to try to bring an end to the Christian movement or as much as he could. Now we see this event happen in Acts 9. Luke tells us about it. What's interesting here is Paul tells us about it from a first person point of view, from his own words. We're going to get a couple more descriptions and a couple more things that Paul includes here that Luke doesn't include in Acts 9. The first we see in verse 6 
It says, as he's going to Damascus, the time was around noon. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what time it was, so we can't assume it was noon, like Paul says here. Why does that matter? Why do we care that it was at noon? Well, I don't know about you. Every time I've thought of Paul's conversion, I always thought it was at night. Now, why did I think that? I don't know. Maybe I'd not read this chapter before. But as I read this chapter, I thought that's interesting. As Paul is blinded by a light, it had to have been a light brighter than the sun because the sun's out. If the sun's out, you can't really see bright light as well. So this light must have been so bright. It was brighter than the sun and it blinds Paul. Think about just how powerful that must have been. He sees this great blinding light from heaven and it shone around Paul. Verse 7, and I fell to the ground. So this light is so powerful, it just takes him by surprise. He falls to the ground, and all of a sudden he hears this voice. And as he hears this voice, it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Paul hears this voice from heaven, and I don't know if he understands yet that this is Jesus. He may think it's from God, but he doesn't know that it's Jesus. But Jesus is the one speaking here. And he says, Paul, you're persecuting me. Why are you doing this? And Paul answers him in verse 8. And he says, who are you, Lord? And I said this back when we looked at Acts 9. But that was several months ago. So I'll say it again. When he says Lord here, I don't think he necessarily thinks this is the Lord Jesus Christ. But he recognizes that this is some kind of higher power. Maybe he thinks it's God. But whoever he thinks he is. He wants to know, hey, who's the guy that's blinding me? Who's the person that's causing me not to see? I don't know about you, but if you're driving at night, one of the things I hate is when you're on a one-lane road and somebody has their brights on and they just won't turn them off and you're supposed to flash your lights at them to try to get them to turn their brights off and they just won't do it. The last time Alicia and I drove at night, I was trying to flash my brights to get someone to turn their brights off, but I turned on my windshield wiper instead. So they didn't really get the point that my windshield wiper was going off. But I wanted them to turn their brights off. Whatever the case is, Paul sees this light. He wants to know, hey, who's the person blinding me? And as we look, it says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Who's the person that Paul was trying to stop? It wasn't just the Christians, but it was the Christians focused around Christ. And if you get to the heart of Paul's rejection of the gospel... He wasn't just rejecting Christians, but he was rejecting Jesus as well. We should remember that as we share the gospel. That as we share the gospel, we want to present it in such a way that when people reject it, they're not just rejecting us, but they're rejecting Jesus as well. So he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Verse 9. Now this is a detail we don't get in Acts 9. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Now in Acts 9 it says they heard the voice, but here we see that they still hear a voice, but they have no idea what it's saying. But they saw still this great light. So Paul realizes this is Jesus, and maybe at this point he recognizes, oh, Jesus is who he says he is. He's the one that's blinding me. And in verse 10 it says, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus. There you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. So Christ doesn't answer all of Paul's questions right away, 
but he instructs Paul to go into Damascus. But instead of going to Damascus with his sight to persecute Christians, he goes there blind. Look at what it says. It says in verse 11, And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Paul goes from being a proud, legalistic Jew to a humiliated, blind, searching person. I don't even know if he's necessarily a Christian yet. We're going to see that come a little bit later. But he's been brought to the end of himself. And I've seen this as I've tried to share the gospel with people. You share the gospel with someone and they just don't quite understand how lost they are without Christ. There have been a couple people that I've talked to and I've talked to their parents and sometimes they will go back. These parents have gone back to the prodigal son and they've said, I don't just don't know if they've come to the end of themselves. Do you remember that in the prodigal son? As he goes from his father and he spends all of his father's inheritance, he loses all that money and he's working with the pigs. He's trying to eat the pig scraps because he has no money. There comes a point where it says, and he came to himself. We don't know quite what that means, but a lot of people think he came to his senses. We don't know if that's where he became a Christian, but he at least realized, hey, I don't want to eat pig scraps anymore. And for different people, we see them as they become Christians or through their conversion experience, come to the end of themselves where they're just broken. And I think this is where Paul was broken. He lost his sight. He lost his ability to see. In verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and said by me, and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. So now another person is introduced. It's this Ananias. Notice that he's called a devout man. What does it mean to be devout? It's something that we normally see of Jewish people. What he's trying to show is that Ananias was a Christian. Yes, but he knew the law as well. It says he was well spoken of by all the Jews who were there. He was a good person. The Jews thought well of him, even though he's a Christian. We don't get the side of the story of God speaking to Ananias. But in verse 13, it says, He came to me, standing by me, and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Verse 14, And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, and to see the righteous one, and hear the voice from his mouth. So he has Paul receive his sight, and then he starts introducing Paul to Jesus. Now what's interesting is how he introduces Paul to Jesus. First, he doesn't cite Jesus, but he cites the God of our fathers. Who is the God of our fathers? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This was the Jewish God. So he says, the God of our fathers appointed you to see his will. Within this text, we see the different roles of the Trinity. God the Father is a sovereign Lord who created everything. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he has a will. We see in the Gospels, Christ submitted to the will of the Father. 
So he says he has appointed you to know his will. What is the will of God? We hear that question a lot. What is God's will? And a lot of times we hear people say, what is God's will for what car I get or what person I date or what house I buy? But the will of God here is to know Jesus Christ. It says to see the righteous one. Who is the righteous one? You can look all throughout scripture and it'll point you to one person and that is Jesus. The will of God is to know the son of God, Jesus Christ, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Look with me at 1 John chapter 1 and I think we get a good idea of who this righteous one in Jesus is. And it applies so well to Paul's situation. At the end of 1 John, John is arguing for the fact that you cannot deny your own sinfulness. Paul, as a Pharisee, might have had the mindset that he could earn righteousness with God on his own. He says in Philippians 3, I thought I was blameless. I thought I didn't need anyone to save me. But look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So it does us no good to say that we're not sinful. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5. Sin entered the world through Adam, and through Adam's sin all have sinned. He shows our sin nature there. But as he continues, as John continues here in verse 9, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does it mean to confess? It means to say the same thing about We think of confession like a police confession. Oh, I admit I did something wrong. And that's somewhat true. But when we use that word, confess, it means that we agree with God about something. We agree with God about our sin. What does God say about our sin? He says, you're sinful and your sin separates you from me. So when we confess our sin, we're agreeing with God. We're saying, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've fallen short, and I know I need your son to save me. And when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And what's that word he uses there? The righteous. So no one can attain this righteousness on their own. If anyone says they don't have sin, they deceive themselves. All of us need to confess our sin before God. But when we have sin that needs confessed, who do we go to? It's Jesus Christ. He is our advocate with the Father. What does it mean to be an advocate? It's someone who goes to someone else on our behalf. Someone who has that relationship with someone to go to them and ask for something to be done. When I was a child and I wanted something at school or something was going on at school and I wanted to see something else happen, I had to go to my parents and they could go to my teacher and say, hey, this is what's going on with my son. They went to the teacher on my behalf. 
That's what Christ does for us. He's our advocate with the Father. And notice how he's called Jesus Christ the righteous, or your Bible might say the righteous one. When we see the righteous one throughout the New Testament, it always points us to Jesus Christ. But what does it mean for Jesus to be righteous? Ananias says it here, back in Acts 22. He says, it's The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. Well, to be righteous means to not only be good, but to be just. To be just according to the law. Now, Paul thought he was just according to the law. He thought he kept the law perfectly. But as we know, no one can keep the law perfectly. So Ananias says, instead of trying to do it on your own, you need to meet Jesus. He's the righteous one. He's kept the law already perfectly. We know that in his human life, Jesus never sinned. Not even once. He faced all the temptations of sin like we do. But Christ never sinned. He is the righteous one. And Ananias introduces Paul not to a concept, not to a movement, but to Jesus. And he says, you need to see Jesus, the righteous one. And it's actually the will of God for you to see him and to know him and to have your sins forgiven by him. It says, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Verse 15 shows us the ministry Paul would have. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. We know that Paul would be a witness. He would go to the ends of the earth sharing the gospel. Verse 16, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon his name. Now, as Ananias calls Paul to salvation here in verse 16, and I can already see some of your faces looking at this, he brings up somewhat of an issue because it seems within a first reading of verse 16 to say that it would be Paul's baptism that would save him. It says, rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. Many people who believe in baptismal regeneration, meaning that water baptism is what they believe saves you, or is at least part of your salvation, they'll go back to this verse, and they'll say, look, you need to be baptized to be saved. And I think we know from other scripture that's not true. It's not just that we need to argue this point here. We know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's not anything that baptism can do. So why does Ananias say this here? There's a couple different beliefs on what this could be. One is that this could be water baptism. This could be referring to the water baptism that happens at salvation. That when you're saved, when you call on Jesus to forgive you of your sins, you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, which we believe. Therefore, taking you from your sinful past, baptizing you, putting you in the new body of Christ. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 1, there is one baptism into which we have been baptized. And I think that's a good option. Some others would believe that baptized and wash away your sins, there should be a comma there separating them from each other. So you should be baptized, but that's not what's washing your sins away from you. I think there's a little bit of a harder road to go through there. But I don't think Ananias is saying here that water baptism would save Paul. But he does call him to repent and believe in Christ. He says, if you've seen Jesus, if you know he's the righteous one, 
then what are you waiting for? Take care of your sins. Confess your sins to him. Call on his name for salvation. And you might wonder today, why can't I depend on my own righteousness? Paul thought this as well. Why can't I earn my own way into heaven? It's because we've all sinned. And there's two different types of unbelievers. There's unbelievers who recognize that they have a sin problem. And there's unbelievers who don't. And maybe you were this person or you are this person or you've known this person who thinks, I don't need anyone else's righteousness. I'm fine just on my own. And maybe growing up, this person, as everyone else breaks the rules, they kept them. They did what they were told. When everyone else didn't care what the teacher said, they obeyed. And they've obsessed themselves with law-keeping, but knowing in their heart that they'll never be perfect. They're trying to make everything in their life perfect, but deep down they're obsessed with the fact that they'll never truly be perfect. And what's the answer for that person? They need to know Jesus. He's the righteous one. What does that mean? He's been perfect so that they don't have to. That doesn't mean that as a Christian we can still sin. We know that in verse 1 of 1 John 2 it says, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But he recognizes that even as Christians we still fall into sinful tendencies. Those who are legalists trying to earn salvation for themselves through doing good things need to know Jesus Christ. And so we share Jesus Christ with them. We say, hey, this was a person who was perfect so that you don't have to be. There's another type of unbeliever, and they recognize that they're not righteous. Maybe all their life they've been told how bad they were and how much of a mess up they were and how they've always messed everything up in their life. And the question for them is not... How can they earn their salvation? But they think over and over again, why would Jesus want to save me? And what's the answer for them? They need to meet Christ as well and recognize that he's been righteous so that they don't have to be. If you call on Jesus to forgive you of your sins, he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He'll forgive you. He'll give you a new life. And as believers in Jesus Christ, which I believe most, if not all of us, are this morning, we must realize that defending the faith is more than just an argument. It's more than just an evidence, but it is about showing others Christ. It is showing others who Christ is, that he was here, that he was born, he lived a perfect life, he died for our sins, and that he wants a relationship with us. He's better than anything else we have to offer. Paul, as he recognizes his spiritual blindness and has it removed, and that's such a great metaphor for what's going on here, he thought he could see but recognizes he's spiritually blind. So as that blindness is taken away physically, he also is able to see spiritually as well. And what does he see? Well, Ananias says in verse 14, you need to see the righteous one. And he's better than anything else Paul had. I want us to finally see this morning that we should continue to share our testimony despite rejection. We see this in the ministry of Paul, not only here, but throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament. In verse 17, he says, When I had returned to Jerusalem, 
praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. So Paul goes back to Jerusalem. We know this from Acts 9. He went back to see Peter. He wanted to have this interaction with Peter. Now, what we also know from Galatians chapter 1 is it was about three years before Paul went back to Jerusalem. He spent a lot of time in Damascus learning from Christ, growing in his faith, sharing the gospel with people there. But as he goes back to Jerusalem here in verse 17, he's praying in the temple. He falls into this trance, which a better translation might be vision that he sees. And it's Jesus talking to Paul again. Verse 18, And I saw him saying to me, Make haste to get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. So Jesus says, you need to leave Jerusalem. And I don't think Paul wants to leave. If you look at verse 19, he's trying to make excuses for why he can stay. He says in verse 19, And I said, Lord, they themselves know in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Paul says, I was a persecutor of the church. I was a zealot. I understood the Jewish faith. Verse 20, When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Paul was committed to Jewish legalism. And why does he bring this up to Christ as Jesus says, hey, you need to leave Jerusalem? I think at this point, Paul thinks, if I can be saved, if I can go from persecuting the church to becoming a Christian, then surely they will be as well. Surely they will be persuaded. But in verse 21, he says, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And Christ shows Paul that it's not only his ministry to witness to the Jews, but it would be his ministry to witness to the Gentiles as well. We've seen this with Paul. He goes to these Gentile nations. He shares the gospel with them. And thousands of Gentiles are saved at different points in his ministry. And the Jewish people, remember there's a riot, a mob that is all listening to Paul. And they've been listening very carefully up to this point. Kind of reminds me of when I would sub. They a couple times got me to do kindergarten and first grade. And I just can't do that. I'm way taller than those kids are. I'm much, I have much less patience than those teachers have for kindergartners and first graders. And the one thing I realized that worked for getting them to just stop talking is to read them a book. And if you read them a book, I don't know what it is about it. They all would gather around. They all would be quiet. And I could read that book up until I said something about whatever they were obsessed with. And if it was a car or a dinosaur, they would all start talking and writing and they'd start playing with each other and running around the room. And so I'd try to avoid those words and maybe replace it with something else. And the Jewish people, they're listening to Paul all the way until he says... Gentiles. And as he says, I need to go witness, or when Jesus says, I will send you far away to the Gentiles, they all break out. They were okay with Paul becoming a Christian. Maybe some of them were starting to be persuaded, but they were not okay with him trying to include the Gentiles. Verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. Better translation, maybe kill him, get rid of him. They didn't want anything to do with Paul. Verse 23, and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks 
and flinging dust into the air. So they start throwing their garments. They start shaking the dust off their coats, which means that they were done with Paul. They didn't want anything else to hear about what he was saying. The tribune realizes this is starting to get really bad. But remember, all the way back to the beginning of our passage, they didn't know what Paul was saying. The Roman soldiers, they spoke Greek, not Hebrew or Aramaic. So in verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So from the soldier's perspective, Paul was talking in a language they did not understand. And he says something and everyone starts to go crazy. So they want to know, what did Paul say that got everyone so riled up? And so they say that they're going to find this out through flogging. Now, flogging was a brutal form of torture with whips, with various pieces of glass usually attached to the end of it. Very similar to what Christ went through before his death. Some think Paul was in the same place where Christ was scourged before he went to the cross. And so they're going to try to get this information from him, this form of torture. And in verse 25, when they had stretched him out for whip, so he's just to the point where he's going to be beaten and flogged. Paul intervenes. And why did he wait till this point? I really don't know. I would have told the soldiers way before this happened. But right as they're about to whip him, Paul says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And you say, well, what, what do you, why do they care if he's a Roman citizen? It was not only illegal, it was an abomination to flog or to whip a Roman citizen. This happens to Paul in Philippians. And at that point, he didn't tell them that he was a Roman citizen. He waited until after they beat him. And in doing that, I think he actually gets protection for the church in Philippi from persecution. Because they were so ashamed, embarrassed of what they'd done. You don't really see a lot of persecution in the city of Philippi. And so Paul here, he's about to be beaten. And he says to the centurion who is there, that person's over a hundred soldiers. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? I love the way he says it. It's like he doesn't know. He says, oh, I'm a Roman citizen. Is it okay for you to do this? And the centurion's face just gets this panicked look and he stops them. And he goes to the tribune in verse 26. When the centurion heard about this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? He realizes this is going to be really, really bad. Verse 27. So the tribune came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. So Paul confirms to him, yes, I am a Roman citizen. Why does the tribune ask him if Paul's already said this? It was illegal to claim to be a citizen, but to not actually be one. It was punishable by not only beating, but death. So Paul's putting his neck out there and saying, yes, I am a citizen. Now, a lot of times you had some sort of plaque or papers that would show you were a citizen. I don't know if Paul had him with him and he said, hey, look at my little citizenship deed. I don't know if he had it with him or not. Maybe they just took his word for it. Whatever the case may be, the tribune starts to get really worried about Paul. In verse 28, the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. It was a common practice during that point for people to bribe officials and earn their citizenship that way. They would offer a large sum of money This shows that the tribune was not actually Roman born. 
that he'd bribed someone. And I imagine he says this somewhat under his breath because it was illegal for him to do this. But there was a difference. There was a difference between bribing someone for citizenship and really being a naturally born citizen. So look at what Paul says. He says, but I am a citizen by birth. And this was the most valuable form of citizenship you could have. Now, how is Paul a citizen? We know he's from Tarsus. This was a wealthy city. This was a prominent city. There's usually two different schools of thought on this. Some think that Paul's father or grandfather could have served in a war. And because they served in a war, the emperor gave them citizenship and their family citizenship. Because if your grandfather had it, you could pass it down throughout the family. So maybe they were soldiers. Some think maybe they were slaves. They were freed slaves. And when they were freed, they were given citizenship as well. Whatever the case may be, Paul had citizenship. And in verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him quickly and the tribune was also afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. It was even illegal for them to bound to bind Paul because of his citizenship. And so that's where we leave Paul. And next week we'll see him defend his faith before the high council, before the high priest. And we'll see him later defend his faith before Roman officials. All the while we see Paul faithfully serving Christ despite rejection. So as we close our service this morning, just a couple of final questions to ask ourselves. First of all, do you share Christ with unbelievers? This isn't just asking, are you evangelistic? Do you find people, and we've talked about this throughout the sermon series, are you involved in people's life? Do you share the gospel with them? Do you take opportunities that are presented to you to share the gospel with others? But when you do those things, when you evangelize other people, when you share the gospel with them, is it Christ that you're pointing them to? Sometimes we think we want to not only share Christ, but all of our political and social and economic views that we have. No, do we share with them Jesus and his gospel? Secondly, do you share the gospel despite rejection? And that's what we've tried to focus on this morning. Paul did not have a favorable reaction. How do we know that? Well, they wanted to kill Paul. Yet, as he shares the gospel with them. He continues to keep going. He would continue to share the gospel. And I think late in Paul's life, he still has a very successful evangelistic ministry. He didn't let rejection slow him down. And we shouldn't either. We know that as we're rejected by others, that Christ was rejected as well. Paul was rejected. So it's okay when others say no to us too. Let's bow our heads together for prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would be with us as we share the gospel with others. We know that we need to depend on you, that it's not us that people need to see, but it's you and your son, Jesus Christ. So help us to do that this morning. We ask that you would be with us in the rest of our service. In Jesus' name, amen.